Welcome everyone. My name is Hannah Behrens and then I'm the director of the Migration Policy Institute uh, Europe, MPI Europe. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to this webinar uh, toward a roadmap for digitalization in the EU humanitarian protection space. Um, let me first give you a, a, a housekeeping note in terms of logistics. So if you would have any problems accessing the webinar at the start or later on, do contact events at migrationpolicy.org. There will be no voice Q&A. So if you do uh, want to ask a question and we warmly welcome you to do that uh, to one of our panelists, please use the Q&A function throughout the webinar. And then when we get to the Q&A session, we will uh, tackle them there or write at uh, towards um, events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, I would also like to uh, encourage you to have a look at our website. Um, there you will see that we have a, a related report to this uh, the topic of the webinar called Rebooting the Asylum System, the Role of Digital, Digital Tools in International Protection. Uh, and this report is part of uh, a project which is funded by the Robert Bosch Stiftung called Beyond Territorial Asylum, Making Protection Work in a Bordered World. And there we explore a number of uh, recent developments developments, um, such as, for example, the use of temporary protection um, statuses and the like, or what is happening uh, at uh, the borders and the like. So do have a look there. Um, this webinar is part of a broader project uh, at MPI Europe, where we're looking at digitalization. And there, um, yeah, we seek to capture what we've been monitoring over the past uh, two years uh, with the help of the Robert Bosch Stiftung. Um, at what's happening, you know, digital tools, uh, digital processes are, are omnipresent in our societies, but migration and asylum systems were a bit late at the table. Uh, the COVID pandemic really has offered tailwind to developments and now we see them popping up everywhere. And so what we've been trying to do is what's happened is to monitor what's happening, why, and particularly to what effect. And so what we wanted to do uh, today is to use the lens of the Ukrainian response here in Europe and see uh, and demonstrate some of the kind of tools that have been mobilized to deal with the huge pressure that have been exerted on migration and sciences, but also, of course, more broadly on different parts of the society. And uh, so we wanted to have the discussion with you and we have with us three uh, panelists who will uh, yeah, allow us to look at some of these developments uh, in terms of the response to Ukraine, but also the three of them really allow us to zoom out and to think more broadly about developments that are ongoing in migration systems when it comes to digitalization and they will shed light on some of the implications and what is needed. So uh, we have within us uh, Ms. Ivina Guczynskaitė, I hope I pronounced that well. She's the director of the migration department at the Ministry of Interior at the Republic of Lithuania. We also have with us Marit Schiepers. She's the director of the Center for Language and Education at the University KU Leuven here in Belgium. And um, we have with us Ms. Jessica Bitter. She's a senior expert for migration at the Robert Bosch Stiftung. Okay, let's go into uh, the, the meat of the discussion now. And let's start with one of the first big challenges um, that member states faced when they were dealing with uh, the arrival of thousands of Ukrainian refugees ex um, 
in, in Europe in the past year and, and a bit. And, and for that, we first uh, turned to Evelina from the Ministry of Interior in Lithuania. So, yes, as I said, this first challenge was that many member states signaled um, yeah, that they had uh, a lot of challenges and a lot of efforts needed to make be made to process um, and issue uh, residence permits. So what's the backdrop to this? Well, basically, um, the great thing was that the temporary protection directive was activated and that helped to remove pressure on asylum systems of EU member states. Why? Because Ukrainians did not have to go through a lengthy asylum procedure to be granted asylum instead. Primarily, they had to um, yeah, demonstrate that they have the Ukrainian nationality and then they were eligible for temporary protection. So, but then the next key procedural step for member states was to take, was to, was to reorganize the kind of checking of documents and verifying of identities and then issuing permits or, uh, which has happened now, now more recently, renewing them. What we heard is that there were several reports about either delays in this whole process of actually issuing residence permits, like in Belgium, or that uh, certain authorities or administrations ran out of plastic cars, like in Poland. And so this kind of delay had knock-on effects on, uh, for example, Ukrainians who had to, for example, make a, a health appointment or um, get an employment contract or secure a house or alike. So what we'd like to hear from Evelina now is what has Lithuania done to address some of these uh, problems that we've seen arising in other member states? Evelina, the, the floor is yours. Hello. Hello, everyone. And thank you very much for having me here in this uh, webinar. So uh, yes, Lithuania also at the beginning of the crisis was using the same procedures, standard procedures, issuing plastic cards, let, telling people to register, to come, to fill in applications and so on. And of course, we also faced the same challenges as other countries, a lot of people queuing in our offices and then big time delays to issue plastic cards. And then again, since they were issued for free, it costed quite a lot for, for our budget to, to get the, those documents uh, made. Um, fortunately, we, we had by then already uh, running um, our MIGRIS migration information system where we stored all the data, biometric uh, data of people and also, and also all the necessary documents. And we could establish communication online via MIGRIS channels. So uh, uh, every applicant Ukrainian could have their own uh, uh, login uh, login place uh, uh, where they could receive information from us. And then we learned that Poland uh, decided to issue uh, start issuing electronic residence permits and we decided to borrow this uh, experience. So when the time came to renew temporary protection, uh, we decided to, to avoid all the queues and to introduce electronic digital uh, residence permit, since it is allowed by, by the EU law to have national permits. So what we did, we used our MIGRI system to, to first to ask everyone who needed extension of their uh, residence permits to apply online without coming to our offices. So they did file in electronic applications. And then we, we just processed those applications also online in our MIGRI system. 
and very smoothly by using the same data that we had collected already previously, we issued them uh, electronic residence permits, which have QR codes, they, they look like that. This is the QR code that can be verified at our web page. So you cannot forge it because a very serious encryption key is put into this QR code. And we sent them to their profiles on Migris uh, where they can access those documents. If they want, they can print. If they want, they don't have to. And of course, the solution costed for us a very uh, small amount of money. And it was very efficient. So the renewal of uh, more than 50,000 uh, uh, documents for us in Lithuania, that's a huge number. We did it in one month and a half. That's great. Thank you, Verina. Yes, and I think you already referred to it, uh, that, yeah, the Ukrainian um, response or the way in which you dealt with, you know, renewing permits builds on a more ongoing development within Lithuania. So you already referred to the system Migres, and it's a broader systemic change that Lithuanian government is pursuing to really transform in a digital manner the asylum and migration system. So it might be interesting for our listeners to, um, if you could expand a little bit on the ambitions for Migres, so what kickstarted it, what parts have you already dealt with, and maybe some of your ambitions for uh, the next years. Thank you. So yes, we have been working with Migris for a, quite a, some few years already. And our ambition is to have all the migration procedures which are done in the Republic of Lithuania to put them, make them digital, get rid of papers. So we started with issuing electronic residence permits, uh, doing all the procedure from the application stage till the stage of making decision and ordering a permit to be printed. Uh, so uh, so uh, we, our first uh, stage uh, was launched in 2019, and by now we already have almost all of our procedures digitalized, which are done dig digitally, which is residence permit, asylum application, citizenship, issuing passports and ID cards, and also uh, travel documents to, to, uh, to foreigners, and also expulsion uh, and uh, entry ban decisions. So it's almost all of it. And at the beginning, it was very hard to convince other institutions to use our tool because they were very reluctant, not believing that it's possible to have such a great tool. But suddenly, in 2021, uh, this hybrid attack of um, irregular migrants coming through, through uh, Belarus border legally happened. Suddenly, uh, we received a huge influx of asylum applicants, and we had to boost Migris system uh, to use Migris for registering all those uh, irregular migrants and asylum applicants. And suddenly, all the other institutions saw the benefit of having one single system where all the data is put and uh, that this data you can see real time all the statistics how many people come uh, what nationalities age uh, gender where to put them where they are where they are lodged and everything so suddenly everyone understood what a good tool we have so then we received a lot of attention and we started quickly quickly expanding and developing the system so this year, year, we are working with the, the last stage in our migration department procedures, which is issuing visas, national visas. We will make them also 
put under the umbrella of MIGRIS. And then, of course, other institutions who joined, they also want to use their, uh, some of their procedures uh, by MIGRIS. And our plan for future is to, uh, to have a mobile app to be mobile friendly uh, and also to um, uh, make produce more digital documents where possible. And we're also already thinking about semi-automated decision making where it's, it's possible. So the future is, is immense. Great, thank you, Velina. Yeah, uh, really interesting to hear the original maybe kind of, uh, well, how we say here in Dutch, the cold water fear, uh, the fear of jumping in certain administrations and how the situation with Belarus and then the large numbers of, of asylum applicants that you had to face and other free, uh, procedures that really helped to, to kickstart the process and, and to hear about the next ambitions. I saw that in the chat, there's already first questions popping up about offline procedures, digital literacy, uh, those kind of things, really interesting. That's something we can pick up maybe in the Q&A session. But before we, we go to the next panelist, I wanted to ask you also a bit about, okay, yeah, is this uh, the way in which you've approached it? Is this a potential blueprint for other uh, states and member states to, to pursue, uh, pursue a similar kind of approach? Uh, did you get your uh, inputs or inspiration um, you know, from other states and, and what would be needed in order to make sure that maybe in the future some of these systems can at least talk to one another or that the outputs of these um, systems can at least be uh, deployed where necessary and of course where allowed uh, with one another. Thank you. Uh, well, of course, every system is devised according to the country procedures and administrational framework, so you cannot copy paste the system from one country to another, but obviously you can take the best, the good, the, more, the best examples and use them. For example, from our system, one good example to use for everyone is to collect data by uh, files to put all data related to one person to put it into one file all decisions to put into one file where you can fi find them so and and we were learning as well uh, and we our system is the baby of uh, we learned from our finnish colleagues uh, which are now mo much more advanced than we are in certain areas so we keep looking at them and um and yes, uh, to make the systems talk, uh, well, since we talk about data, the most important thing is to agree between uh, countries which want to exchange data to have a, a similar, the same sets of data to be collected. And then the question where they are put, how it is divided, it's already the question of usability where every institution, every organization develops this usability according to their own needs. Thank you, Evelina. Really interesting. Um, yes, indeed. I think it's really interesting to see what kind of, in terms of the output, if that would be a first step, uh, similar kinds of data. We know there's still lots of potential there to help uh, harmonize what kind of data is collected and shared with other authorities where needed. Um, so thank you very much. We'll come back to you in the Q&A session and I'll now turn to uh, Marit Hippers. Um, yes, Marit, let's talk, let's have a look and dive into another challenge that uh, member states uh, 
but other states are also dealing with large numbers of, of refugees arriving on their territory is, of course, the issue of, of education. So we know that about if we look at the, the flow to Europe, about 50 percent of the, the, the population who've arrived from Ukraine are under 18. And so countries like, for example, Poland uh, are dealing with uh, about four and a half 450,000 under 18s from Ukrainian uh, nationality. So over the past year, it's a bit been more, a bit more than a year now, we've seen really like a kind of a plethora of, of different kind of modalities through which this kind of ride and also of course the obligation to educate those under 18 have been pursued with, with some um, youth enrolling in national systems. Others uh, have actually been continuing uh, online education via the Ukrainian system. And I guess the, the COVID period and lots of young people being introduced to that system supported that. And, and we see also a mix of those. Um, and it's really a very important issue to pursue. Why? Because the challenges for member states in this area are really huge. This happened amid our education systems in many EU member states being under a lot of pressure. So in terms of like a lack and a kind of a structural shortage of, of teachers and teaching staff, but also buildings and infrastructure. And so against this backdrop, they really member states had to find really a rapid solution for these thousands of young people arriving uh, into their cities. So the Ukrainian online education system seems to have offered in some cases a kind of temporary respite in certain uh, situations. But you know, it's really important to consider what are the implications also for youngsters in terms of building up uh, peer relationships, uh, social integration, does it have an impact on isolation, learning the language? Uh, and the question that we have is with September not so far away after the summer and, and that being potentially a, a crunch time for the Ukrainian response because many families will have, have to face the fact that they have to enroll their children for the second time around and may resign or um, take their peace with a more kind of prolonged stay in, in Europe. Yeah, the question is really, can these kind of digital tools support with uh, dealing with this huge population and, and the challenge they pose. So let's have a look um, and, and maybe start with a, a first question, Marit, because I guess many listeners, you know, especially policymakers, but also, also working um, with or in, in connection to education system will want to know what kind of digital tools could be mobilized as they either devise or revise their strategy for securing education for all these Ukrainian young people and supporting them with their educational attainment. So when we speak of hybrid learning, what does that mean? Can you maybe briefly explain that to our listeners as to what that concretely entails? Thank you, Marit. Okay, I will, I will give it a shot because it's a complex thing. And first of all, Hannah, um, I totally agree with you that this is often a first question schools and teachers have. Which digital tools can we use in our classes for our pupils? This is even irrespective of the current situation. And since there's a very wide range of educational technology, it's difficult to see the trees through the forest and to make informed choices because this wide range, you can make exercises and authoring tools like Storyline in an LMS, a learning management system. You can use speech technology, you can use translation apps to support learning, you can use mobile apps for polls, you can use social media for collaborative learning, there's also game-based learning. But what they have in common, one, first thing, there's no one-size-fits-all, and the second thing, 
working out material online is labor intensive. So again, it is important to make informed choices. And in order to make these informed choices, you really have to take a step, ba step back from the tool question. And first you have to ask yourselves, so what are our learning goals and which added values do we want to realize for whom? In this case, it's this Ukrainian youth and in which context. And that brings me to this definition of, of blended learning, of effective blended learning you were asking about, because there are many uh, definitions in literature, and it's good for the audience to know that I am mainly reporting about our research on the topic. But when you look at definitions, they all contain three components. And uh, the first one is that effective blended uh, education is a thoughtful combination of online and offline learning opportunities and starting from clear learning objectives and the needs of the target group. So this is really important to have in mind. And an important side remark is also that this well-considered combination can be interpreted in different ways. So you have all possible combinations of online and offline learning activities at a distance or in the classroom, synchronous where the learners are at the same time online, asynchronous, individual or collaborative. And this is an important remark because the whole pandemic made us think that blended learning was only online at a distance, all at the same uh, in the same Zoom link and individual. But in reality, the possibilities are endless, but you have to think both about the added values and the thresholds. Thank you. Really interesting overview because indeed that's some of the things that you've mentioned, like uh, speech technology, technology translation apps, uh, kind of social media, and all these kind of things are really interesting, and I'm sure uh, many are interested in. But thank you for explaining a bit further how we should envision this kind of blended learning. So maybe uh, I think the first in interesting question to to pursue with is what are some of the the opportunities or the benefits. Uh, that these uh, tools generate and, and what kind of problems could they potentially resolve when you embark on those? Yes, but okay, generally spoken, when you look at advantages of blended learning, most cited in literature, it's the opportunity to learn anywhere, anytime. Um, Another advantage is to create learning uh, and practice opportunities outside of the classroom, of the physical classroom. And a third one is the opportunity to create not only more learning opportunities, but also learning opportunities that are tailored to the individual learning needs, the interest, the starting position of each pupil. And, and this is without doubt the most important advantage, but also the one which is the least realized because it's the most difficult. And then when you make the connection or when you look at the heterogeneous target group of Ukrainian children and youth, then this customization through digital tools can open many new doors. Uh, and I will start with an example about language acquisition, because I take this example because it's my specific expertise. And specifically for these Ukrainian children and youth when they are embarking our educational systems, they have to learn also the language of their new country, especially when they have an opportunity to stay. And when you want to learn a new language, when you need uh, like thousands of hours of extensive practice uh, by being exposed to the language, by interacting in the new language, 
And online, yes, you can create ample opportunities of being exposed to the target language by means of authentic videos and text. For instance, current newsreel clips, uh, you can uh, connect functional exercises to these clips. And this way, as a teacher, you have the advantage that you can reserve classroom time for quality interaction which is more difficult to realize online. For instance, you can have discussion about opinions. But also, and this is, this is really important, that you give pupils the opportunity to generate their own content and produce language, not only through text, but also by videos, by audio and other audiovisual material, bringing in their own living environment. And also, so we had about these translation apps, so they can also have help online and they can rely on their mother tongue. For instance, you can let pupils make an online guide about uh, neighborhood leisure activities in which they learn both the language and the neighborhood. So this is really something about uh, a strong uh, blended uh, exercise. That these uh, examples of online learning can also be used uh, inside the classroom, outside the classroom, and maybe also important with regard to these uh, Ukrainian children, also in any waiting period before they can effectively attend school. Now, an important remark is that some courses are less easy to blend. For instance, when you have a, a practical component, for instance, a, a course uh, like cooking. Um, so, but also here you can think about forms of uh, pre-teaching, flipped classroom, or exercises aimed at consolidating learning material. So in sum, depending on your learning goals and your curriculum, and the added value you are aiming at, you can realize different blends. But you really have to think about it. And what you shouldn't do, this is something I really want to say, is reduce online language learning to fill in the blank exercises, to multiple choice exercises, uh, which uh, learners can do uh, alone, maybe in isolation, outside the classroom, or in some other classroom without a teacher. Um, I think this is not uh, the way of creating a strong blend. And uh, innovative blended learning mostly depends on didactics and less on the tools you are going to choose. Great, uh, Marit, yeah. And I think it was useful for you to focus on language acquisition because we hear, of course, that's a big challenge uh, mm -hmm. in, in many schools. Um, and it links with what you were saying, how important it is when you're developing these kind of blended learning that you have this kind of really clear learning goal in, in your head. Um, and maybe in a moment, you can also just refer to uh, you and your team have also supported development of these kind of really um, very hands-on tailored, you know, live exercises. Maybe you can refer to that, which really are the opposite of, of fill in the blank. Um, but then uh, you were already signaling to it. I mean, there are also, of course, uh, certain risks attached to or maybe some issues we need to take take in, into account when we're developing that and I already saw that in the chat there was also some um, questions raised in that regard because you know for example what about uh, yeah these kind of vulnerable uh, people they're at a crucial age sometimes when they need a lot of peer relationships you know what about social isolation and those kind of elements thank you yes yeah, so definitely when you look at the target audience of Ukrainian youth there are really some risk you have to take into account. Look at uh, learning characteristics like digital skills, literacy skills, self-regulation, that they are able to learn independently. And you can really 
by blended learning, you can enhance these skills, but at the same time, they are uh, prerequisite uh, for pupils to be successful. And then in particular, I'm thinking about uh, primary school students who are still developing their executive, their executive uh, skills and who need a lot of guidance. So this is really a first risk you have to take into account. Also, the context is important in this case because uh, the extent to which there is a quiet home environment, which uh, pupils have the necessary ICT equipment, and as uh, they often live in emergency housing, refugee children are less likely to have a quiet and stimulating home environment with the necessary infrastructure. So this is also, you have to take something into account, but you made an important remark. These youngsters, they often have experienced trauma, loss. So it is really important that they can build a social network and that they can experience the classroom as a social trusting and interactive environment, that they can connect with peers. So both well-being and social connection are key to motivation. So this again, the blended learning is the thoughtful combination of face-to-face -face and online. Now, the good news is, and this is a bit maybe my take-home message at this point, you can overcome these thresholds, but you always have to start with an analysis based on three questions. What type of courses do you teach? Who are your learners? What is the context of the learning environment? And the answer to these three questions strongly determine what a powerful blend looks like in your context or in your country. And as said, there's no one size fits all. So it's a complex uh, situation, but um, you have to start with these three questions. And it's important, these three questions are for teachers, but in the first place also for the schools, because they should develop a clear vision. Uh, who are our pupils? And they should appear inside that in multidisciplinary teams. And they have to provide uh, the necessary technical support and also to make uh, blended learning accessible for all, also by uh, lending the equipment. This, this is really important. Um, and then you have the thoughtful course design, but I gave some examples about that and effective teacher conduct because teacher always makes a difference by scaffolding learners basic skills by encouraging interaction, offering just in time support. So this is really important and maybe a last uh, remark. This doesn't only apply to the Ukrainian case, but to the whole educational system. So perhaps we should use this crisis to rethink our educational system, which is often still largely frontal face-to-face -face education. So I think when we think about a solution, it should be about a solution or about innovation in the educational system as a whole. Thank you, Mario. I think that's a really beautiful note to end on, uh, especially as we know, of course, that this is also something more broadly that's often mentioned in the in the protection uh, sphere. Uh, why not make sure that, uh, yeah, when we're trying to revisit systems, that we also make it also to the benefit of different kind of target groups. I think that's really key. And the COVID pandemic gave us a kind of a platform to do it. So let's see if we can really, um, yeah reap the benefits of some of the developments we saw there. But let me now uh, turn to Jessica Wither. As I signaled at the beginning, our aim is to also really just to zoom out and to look at some of the more broad developments uh, on digitalization and protection migration systems more broadly. 
uh, and, and Jessica, having looked at this for a number of years now, uh, as I said, she's really leading this portfolio at the board of Bosch Stifting. It comes with a lot of expertise on this front. Jessica, we've we've heard a, a lot of different kinds of now, a number of examples of how digitalization has really helped to member states to deal with some of the pressures exerted on uh, their asylum and migration system more broadly, the society. So um, you've followed this issue for some time. And so what we would be really interested to hear from you is before we zoom out is, can you maybe briefly refer to some other digital developments uh, that you've seen unfolding relinked to Ukraine and that we don't have the time to discuss in depth, but maybe that can already signal to us. Thank you. Yeah, sure, um, Hannah, and, and thanks for having me on this webinar. And maybe just to name a, a few other examples, because as you mentioned, of course, it always depends on which area are we looking at in the response to Ukrainian refugees, which actor constellation, and actually which technology are we talking about, right? So the, there's many different use cases. Um, on the registration verification side, um, perhaps similar to the first example that we heard, also, Poland has used the, the backbone of the Ukrainian digital ID system, the DIA app, to create um, its own registration verification system, also issuance of residence permits, um, documents that allow uh, people to travel within the Schengen area and, and alongside their, their passport. Um, and these types of things that has really sped up the process there, um, building again on existing infrastructure and the some people may, of course, have heard the EU Commission's um, initiative to institute a, a real-time exchange platform for the temporary protection um, directive. Uh, it's a very specific use case because it only applies to Ukrainians and, and the specific context. But um, you know, the feedback from member states is that it's been um, very fast and, and super helpful in, in this case. There's a one other example I find interesting because it's, it's sort of a different angle is the a platform that a company or a civil society, civic tech org called Commit Global in Romania has established that sort of coordinates between civil society actors, government, um, other actors on, on different aspects. So, so a digital platform that's been really in use there. Um, but also you're seeing, I think, different tools in member states. One example is uh, Germany that as a response to this has created a migration dashboard that different actors from the very municipal level, the state level, and the federal level have access to that. It doesn't give any personal information on, on any individuals, but that really aggregates sort of data on Ukrainians arriving, but also all other asylum figures, so that all actors from the get-go sort of have a real-time overview of different developments, um, that it's not just a one-sided briefing from the federal to the to the local level. And I think those three um, cases also show sort of the different purposes um, and, and the different technologies behind it and the different ways it's been it's been it's being used and actually implemented. Thanks, Jessica. I think, yeah, the, the data exchange is really something that has really, you know, really take, took flight in the last, I think, year and a half uh, when uh, we had our webinar on, on, on Ukraine one year on. Esther Pozovera, who's the head of the asylum unit at DG Home and the European Commission, also mentioned the importance that more and more member states are asking for clear information of the number of people that are with, uh, you know, on their soil, uh, the kind of movements, uh, the needs 
needs that different populations have. And it's also something that Evelina was referring to earlier on. I think your, your example also of Germany, I think it's really interesting to see, to make sure how through aggregated data, making sure that these are anonymized where possible that um, yeah this information is shared so that local authorities can really plan ahead as to where to invest in the coming months in particular services. But um, maybe let's now zoom out a bit more, Jessica. And yeah, already in this paper that I referred to uh, and that we developed also with the support of, of your foundation, you know, rebooting the asylum system, we had really tried to map the kind of developments in the protection field when it comes to digitalization. And one of the things we noticed, lots of different kinds of developments going on, but it's very fragmented, uh, sometimes a lack of a strategic vision and the like. So, We'd be really interested to hear from your side, um, you know, what are some of the kind of questions that key stakeholders, think of policymakers, public authorities, civil society actors should be um, engaging with uh, as digitalization also seeps into the asylum and migration world. So what kind of potential do you see, but also what kind of pitfalls? And maybe um, just a question, maybe this dichotomy between benefits and pitfalls is maybe not the most useful framework to look at this issue, but interested to hear your view. Um, sure, and maybe just to, to get to your to your very last question, is this dichotomy helpful? And I think, you know, having worked sort of on, on this intersection now for, for a few years, and the longer I work on it, the more uncomfortable I get if that is the only question we have, right? Because I think ideally that's, the end result of what we get to for specific use cases that we can say, okay, these are some opportunities there um, and that, and these are some pitfalls or, or real challenges. But in order to get there, I think there's some really necessary steps that we need to ask specifically at this intersection of digital technologies, be it in the protection or migration space more broadly. Um, and that's sort of related to our approach, the mindset we bring to the table, and then some bigger questions that then would guide us to being like, okay, these are some really big risks that we see, and these are some real opportunities. And I think both exist, but we, we have to really look for them actively, and they, and they don't just happen. Um, and maybe on the first point, sort of the, the mindset or the approach, how we approach this, I think it's always important to really um, remember or remind ourselves that a technology is not neutral and its use, no matter how it seems, is always inherently political, right? There's always underlying value questions, um, choices, assumptions about what a good outcome is that, that go into the development and design of any such questions. And I think maybe we all experience that on ourselves, but also in society, there's a growing awareness of this, for example, on the use of AI systems that have sort of been unleashed uh, onto all of us, but it also means it's happening in a space that's still largely unregulated. Um, and then we enter the migration protection space that in itself is highly political uh, and the choices and the, the political legislation that happens there. And it's at the same time, very personal. It affects individuals um, very personally. And so if you bring those two fields together, it's never just a technical exercise of, of sort of um, having a, a check mark boxes of, of the list, but that it's really our responsibility to start asking those questions and coming to some of those bigger, bigger questions in, in order to evaluate, okay, where are some risks in society? So to start with that, um, maybe some key questions that I think are always useful or that we've seen again and again that have sometimes not been asked when designing these questions. And that's really, you know, for which purpose are we employing 
a technology? Which goal is it supposed to solve in the protection space rather than taking a technology as a starting point and then see, oh, where can it be used? Um, who's making these decisions? Is everyone in the room that should be involved? It could be all the actors, municipal actors, but also if it really is being used by individuals. Um, and then how is it being used by authorities or how does it impact people? And we know, for example, that um, certain systems really scale existing inequalities, um, racial discrimination or biases that we find in our societies. Um, we've seen this in automated systems like the, the Dutch welfare fraud algorithm. Um, and so this is always, when you look at these certain technologies, a very real possibility in the migration and protection space. And once we know these choices, that actually determines what type of digital technology, according to which rules we end up choosing. So then that informs us, okay, which data do we want to collect and for which purpose, um, rather than just collecting as much data as possible or which oversight or controls are in place or need to be in place. Um, and ideally, all those questions then give us a better framework to see sort of where are some red lines, what are the specifics in migration and protection that we need to keep in mind. Um, and I mentioned this because I, I do see um, that we're all getting better as a sort of community of, of getting there, but I, I, I think it's, it's still sometimes not considered. And once we have that in place, we can see some of the bigger risks and some of the real opportunities. And I just want to give a few examples um, to, to show where I think those that are most relevant in our space and also highlights what is happening in, in the protection space more broadly. Um, some really obvious perhaps obvious risks, but those are related, for example, to the increasing use and, and collection and sharing of biometric data and biometric collection. Um, and we all know that this could be used theoretically you know, by our own agencies or other governments for growing surveillance apparatus that in the end affect us all. So is that what we're doing in the migration space actually leading to a use of technology that you know, leads to more digital authoritarian uses and not to a democratic control of technologies. We're also seeing this in emerging legislation um, that's determining how these will be governed. Um, you can see in the current a um, AI Act, EU AI Act, um, where civil society organizations have really done a great job of calling to some of these risks in the migration space, arguing that they should be allocated in the high-risk category. So things that are not regulated that will be regulated soon um, but I think also by asking these questions, we actually get to some of these opportunities because it forces us to really question the values and the necessity behind each step. We can see um, and maybe make our systems better. Um, I'd like to use one example, which is uh, sort of the, you, maybe you've heard of it, the matching algorithm um, that is used to, uh, you know, match accepted asylum seekers. It's not used in the case of Ukraine right now because it doesn't apply to uh, different municipalities or regions. Um, the version in Switzerland, um, based on the GeoMatch algorithm, doesn't take individuals' preferences into account. That's because that has never been government policy and it was simple a digitization of that government policy. But by uncovering this, we actually really need to ask, is a system that does not take individual preferences into account, actually, does it lead to better integration outcomes or should we even consider it if it doesn't include human agency? Um, a second example, I think where we do see um, real potential, for example, in the cases of Ukraine that we've, we've seen here, and that's really how digital tools, platforms can help better link civil society actors and communities 
with state actors in responses. And that could, you know, if you if you spin that further, really strengthen community-led responses involving individuals and in how um, we, we receive um, refugees, asylum seekers in the future. So that they can be real tools to move the system in that one. And then I think there are other areas where we could be looking closer, but haven't. But if you think of protection more broadly, could there be digital technologies if our main aim is to offer protection to human rights defenders in other countries that may not have access to certain protections? Um, and how would that be designed? It's a completely different question than how do we register people when they come, but there's sort of an untapped use, I think, there um, to, if we look at the questions differently. Um, and then finally, I think also maybe um, in the area of, of labor migration, changing work working world where you know skills recognition for for newcomers becoming more and more important but also for all of us and um, the way credentialing and, and individual matching could, could play a role there and um, so just to summarize these points i think it's always important to remind us which mindset we bring to it to remember that it's uh, you know technology is never a neutral exercise it's never just a technical exercise and there are bigger picture implications be that how use cases in the migration field affect bigger developments. For example, um, does it lead to more potential for more surveillance either in other countries or in, in the EU itself? Um, but also there are real opportunities to actually change the system if we start to ask the right question. Um, Mariette mentioned, you know, the inverted, I think, switched around classroom would be super interesting to take that concept in terms of, you know, kids and newcomers in schools take the, you know, who first arrive, how that may be a, a really good um, educational approach to integration um, systems in, in, in the first response. Um, and then one final point I did want to make, um, or that I see in the European space, at least, and then there's often this desire to create entirely separate digital systems for the migration and refugee space. Um, and I think especially when it comes sort of you know, thinking of digital ID systems, national digital ID systems or others, I think we really need to also take a step back and ask why should there be separate rules and separate systems for, for certain people? Could it not be that 80% of the system is actually the same um, and, and a se separate point? And um, I'll leave it at that for now, but happy to go further into these questions. Thank you, Jessica. And I think that, that your last point also resonates very nicely with Mari's last point is to really make sure that we yeah, mobilize these tools for, for more broader um, society-wide developments, like she was saying, in terms of making sure this is uh, something we pursue with our, our pupils more broadly within societies. Um, and I think your point about, you know, what are the ambitions uh, to really keep that clear in mind when we're either you know, using something that's already developed, or if we're actually kickstarting a development, uh, a digital tool is really crucial. I think uh, both of our other panelists have also referred to that. Um, that was a clear message from Marit when it comes to what are our learning goals, uh, who are the pupils, who are the people teaching, what kind of context, but also with Ivelina, I think uh, her um, yeah, explanation that this really was also fueled further by what happened with uh, the situation with, with Belarus and making sure I think that procedures are done as, as quickly as possible, of course, with the necessary 
a time for people to, of course, provide information uh, that is needed. But we know that this has been a, a long-standing problem across Europe with really lengthy asylum applications, people struggling to register online and have the first interview. So it's been a really interesting discussion to see all of these different kind of threads that the three of you put forward to tie these together. And I think uh, we've got a really interesting basis to start our Q&A section uh, now of the webinar. Uh, thank you to all of those who already posted um, questions in the chat function or the Q&A function. So please do mention them there. Um, and let me just kickstart the discussion now with the issue of data protection, data privacy, because I've seen there's been a number of questions raised there. Um, um, so maybe we can uh, turn also to, to, to different parts of panelists, because I think each of you, there was a question, for example, in relation to education, uh, Marit, uh, about, you know, how can we make sure that also it's, it's a very um, sensitive age, we're already worried sometimes with social media and the like, how can we make sure that data that's shared through this kind of different kind of uh, blended learning is, is protected and nicely um, yeah, monitored in a certain way where possible. Uh, and for Ilipilina as well, there was questions about um, are there consent, uh, is, is consent given by uh, those refugees or migrants uh, to gather the data? How do we make sure that, um, I think as you're saying, Evelina, it's really crucial that, that uh, authorities can quickly access the information really helps with the procedure and making it sure that it is decision taking swiftly, but how do we also make sure that not certain kinds of data are shared, we should not. And maybe Jessica, you already alluded to that as well. Um, how do we do this? Is it sufficient to have consent or do we need to look at more technical provisions? So maybe let's first to turn to Evelina and then Marit and then Jessica, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, I would say that the digital solutions allow to protect data much better than non-digital, than analog solutions, because uh, in asylum procedures and all the immigration procedures, we have the same principles. We used them when we were working with paper files. We informed the uh, uh, asylum seekers, or in this case, Ukrainian uh, refugees, about uh, the um, use, usage of their data. And this is a standard procedure. Uh, they are informed that their data will be used for their asylum applications, so the, for their file processing. But with digital tools, we are ensuring that only those who are entitled to access data will access them because the, the system is protected from breaches, uh, very well protected. And then all the users who receive data, they, they receive only the amount of data which they are entitled to receive by the law. Uh, so let's say municipalities, they receive only the necessary data, the minimal amount of data, and only about the residents of their municipalities. We don't get data about other residents in other municipalities. And internal users of Migris, they also have their roles and they can access only the amount of data which is needed for their procedures. Thank you very much, Evelina. Really interesting. Uh, yeah, Marit, there was this question uh, in relation to yeah tackling issues of personal data and privacy also in relation to education. Maybe you can tell a bit more about that. Well, that's a difficult question. Also, if all the AI technology and evolutions 
Um, well, what I do know about our research is that um, indeed there's a concern also about being online also from a teacher perspective. When am I online? When uh, do the uh, pupils come online? And uh, for instance, during the pandemic, uh, they, they communicated a lot by WhatsApp. So it was like, do we use our private number of the teacher, but also of the pupils? How do we cope with that? So um, this is also something important at policy level, policy school level, that you make clear arrangements. So when do I expect you to come online? What, with what tools? Uh, which data do we use? Uh, what can we see at what hours? So this is something that's really important to, to make these arrangements and also to communicate them really explicitly uh, to teachers, to pupils about uh, these kind of things. So this is really a concern you should tackle also at policy level. Thank you, Marit. And maybe Jessica, yes, also for you, because this is a question, you know, as we were saying, uh, is consent sufficient? Does there need to be some kind of technical developments that are needed? And also uh, maybe linked to that, uh, do you have an impression that those who have to, you know, policymakers and law, uh, lawyers and lawmakers and the like are sufficiently digital literate or are in, aware of the kind of implications to make sure that this kind of data protection issues or privacy issues are uh, handled correctly or, or effectively. Yeah, um, maybe just to add to, to what the speakers said before, some important thing, again, we're dealing in the migration protection space. So which area are we looking at? And, you know, one important one is verification and identification and that to now, you know, definitely include some sort of biometric um, ID and often a lot of personal information. So that in its nature is sort of, sort of very sensitive information. So there's a whole data security aspect. Um, and Evelina mentioned some of those checks and guidelines that you can actually build into the digital infrastructure. Um, and, you know, so it's not a technical question in, in that sense. You can make sure, which is super important, that there are certain access controls um, and, and who has access to which type of data and make that, um, on the back end, of course, depends on what type of system you choose. For example, for digital IDs, is it a decentralized system or a centralized database? Um, right now in the migration protection space, almost all are, are centralized. There are, there are different reasons for that. But if, if you think about building these out or making them compatible digital ID systems, you know, there's very risks for having a very centralized database. It's a single point of attack for potential cybersecurity risk. People can misuse them if there are no controls, um, different agencies. So th there's different ways of, of that these have their own risks. And one could easily think for certain use cases that it's not necessarily to have them in a centralized database, right? So when it's not about the identification verification for a specific claim, and that brings me maybe to my last point, and that's maybe taking a step further, you know, there's I think there is a um, tendency or a, a big trend to think that, you know, more and more information, more biometric information, more personal information, and the more information we amass, um, you know, either for security purposes or something else, the better the system will get. And, you know, what you see in the humanitarian protection space and digital tools is really this principle of data minimization, of really checking which data is actually absolutely crucial and necessary for the purpose of a given system. And I think um, that would be one um, principle to really explore um, and really implement in this place as well. And then the final point, you know, is what is this data then used for? 
Um, and we can think about some good use cases like aggregate data um, that doesn't include personal information to get situational analysis, analysis etc. But when it comes to sort of, you know, using any type of personal information you start collecting in, in a given system, and then, for example, starting to want to look at automating decisions based on that um, or using that as indicators for something else. And I think that's where all the, the value choice questions come in, but also the potential, real potential for it for discrimination and other forms of harm. And so when using this type of data, given the context and given that it is so personal and highly sensitive in many of these cases, I think just requires real careful scrutiny and for all of us to know what it is that we're talking about, what system are we talking about and how should we govern them. Thank you, Jessica, really interesting. Um, we'll have two more questions before we then un unfortunately have to close the webinar and they'll be for uh, Evelina and Marit. Uh, I'll, I'll just briefly uh, mention them so they can already reflect on it for a second before then I hand over the floor. So Evelina, for you, there's a question about maybe exactly what, what we were just hearing also now from Jessica. I mean, to what extent could uh, um, a refugee or, or, or migrants uh, request to have access to their file or to what is actually um, uh, yeah, accumulated about them. And I think that's something that Jessica was just now referring to. We, we, we amassed this data, as she was saying, I think all of us maybe are sometimes a bit worried about the digital imprint that we make or leave behind. And also when is that actually used to uh, analyze certain dimensions of our lives or, or to make a certain decision for us. So I think that's a really important question maybe, and I'll turn to you in a second. And then already mentioning to Mari, there's also a question about uh, credentialing and I like you know, how, you know, to make that in an electronic format. There was a reference to a question about how can we make sure that at some point, if, for example, now in September, there's the decision for those who've already been so far involved in Ukrainian education system that they decide to, to go into the offline education system to, to join the national education system, how can they make sure that, you know, the credentials that it builds up are, are then um, yeah, available to the teachers that will be working with those children. Um, I remember that in our previous uh, webinar on Ukraine there as well, the, the head of the Czech uh, director for migration mentioned that they already thinking about if people would go back to Ukraine, that they would actually have so the people, the so children who are part of the Czech education system, they get their credentials and they've already um, set up a communication with the Ukrainian education system, make sure that those kind of point systems are either uh, recognizable or can actually translate. So I think that's a really interesting one and it, it you know, it addresses uh, or touches upon, of course, this larger question of digital identities and digital portfolios and, and how do these work. But first to Evelina, so Mariti can also reflect a little bit on that. Uh, Evelina, the floor is yours. Uh, yes, yes, of course, uh, asylum seekers have the right to access uh, their file and we have a separate procedure where we can extract all the data which that we have in their Migris file. As, as I said, we store all the data in personal files, which allows us to get all the data to show the asylum seeker or the lawyer what we have about them. And of course, Migris is the system where we store not classified data. Uh, because the classified data is still stored in paper format and we will keep it for uh, still a few years more. So, and uh, classified data cannot be given to the asylum seeker. So that's in the earlier cases. And um, so, yeah, and mistakes, mistakes can be done 
all the time, you, you cannot avoid it. This is why even if we try to make as much as possible digitalized, still the life contact with the uh, person is, is a key principle in all our procedures so that we must have at least one live chat with the person to avoid uh, all those human uh, psychological mistakes. It's really interesting. And I guess that, that's also something that I think all of you have mentioned, you know, to on the one hand seek to reap the benefits of digital tools, but not to lose on, you know, the key impo uh, important data collection or exchange moments with, with persons in, in real time. Uh, so Marit, uh, now to you, do you have some more information you can share with our participants? In Thank one you. minute, Hannes. So because I think it's well, really, <laughs> really interesting, but also an all encompassing question. So this is, yes, I need more than one minute, but maybe uh, one thing, it makes me think about new evolutions we see in education and the development uh, of dashboards in which uh, integrated data about pupils are collected. And I think this is really something, it's, it's something that is really uh, an important evolution. And uh, also uh, in the context of research about how can we collect this data? How can we integrate them? How can they tell us something about the pupils to the teachers, to the schools, so they can make decisions about their didactics uh, and about the trajectories the pupils can uh, follow. Um, but Yes, I think it's, I hear the clock, it's four o'clock. <laughs> um, so it's a discussion in itself. It's yeah, um, no, interesting. Yes. No, thank you very much. Well, uh, I would like to thank, um, yeah, the three of you. It's been a really interesting uh, discussion. Um, yeah, for, within a very short time of just an hour, allowing us to, to look in and and uh, yeah, get to learn some of the new digital tools that are being used so far. So thank you very much uh, for taking the time to discuss this with us and also thinking about the broader implications and next steps to be taking different fields. So um, I would also like to thank all of our participants for joining us today and for those who've also, uh, yeah, livened up the discussion with uh, asking some of these really pertinent questions in the chat and the Q&A function. So, uh, what I would just like to say is to do have a look at our website, uh, as we said, to look at related reports and uh, initiatives. And uh, the video of today's event will be available quite soon on our website tomorrow. And so you can have a look there. So thank you to all and have a nice remainder of the day.